So I'm going to have uh, one of my high school students who's an artist. She's going to she's made me be an art major. I'm going to see if I can uh, pay a struggling artist to create a graphic for me. And I'm going to use the um, the carabus or the cerebus, which is the three headed hand of hell. Right. I'm just going to use that as kind of an image just for a thing. But I'm going to do um, in August. So this is my preview and then I'll get into Isaiah. But I want it on the camera here. So what I'm going to do. So starting in August is I'm going to have a class called Understanding the Times. And that's not an original title. It's actually from uh, the Old Testament, Men Who Understood the Times. Okay, that's actually what that's from. Um, but it's also the name of a, a curriculum by Summit Ministries, which is a worldview ministry out of Colorado. Um, but I'm going to just lift it for myself because it's not like it's copyrighted. <laughs> but Understanding the Times is what we're going to do in August. And so just to kind of give you a preview, I'm going to do, so I said the three-headed hound of hell, right? It's kind of like what I said. I'm going to give you three major topics that we're going to cover. And I'm going to, and when I cover, I mean, we're going to take probably several weeks in each of these. Um, and I've already got the first one lined up because there's 20 minute video uh, curriculum from the author that I'm going to use for it. And so the first one we're going to do is the modern self. Okay. So this will be the first of my three heads. And in particular, Carl Truman's book, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, you, that's actually a pretty heady book. Um, if you read that, there's a lot of intellectual history in it. It's really good. But he's going to create a popular version of it next year. But he, at Grove City College, has a eight video, uh, an eight-episode video curriculum that's each with each episode about 20 minutes long. The name of the book again? The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, and he, and it'll make, and again, we'll, we'll get into that. So I'll be my first one. His tagline is how do we go to the statement? I am a man trapped in a woman's body for that's a sensical statement. A hundred years ago, he talks about his grandparents. So he's in like his fifties or sixties. He was said, my grandpa in rural England, who was like a metal, a sheet metal worker would have had, would have had made no sense of that statement. You know, it's like, I'm a man trapped in, he was like, what are you talking about? Like that would have made no sense. What has happened culturally to get us to the point where that actually does make sense to some people? You get what I'm saying? That's his tagline. So it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it's not just about that issue. There's a whole lot of issues. So my first one is The Modern Self. So I'll probably spend, I'll use his episodes, but then I'll, I'll add to it and speak to it and we'll, we'll discuss. I'll have, actually have discussion guides for it and everything. It's a big curriculum. Um, so Modern Self. Okay. Do you have the episodes where you be able to provide so we can Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'll put the links. I'll send a link out. If you want to watch them ahead of time or after, yeah, yeah, I will. Because sometimes you have to take that stuff in triggers. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a whole playlist for it. Like, he, okay. it's, and it's he teaches at Grove City College. I don't know if you know Grove City College, but it's a uh, small Christian college in Pennsylvania that takes no government funding. They intend, so like their kids are like, they're kind of like, if, if you think of a secular version, think like Hillsdale. Yeah. Hillsdale is more of a secular version of that. This is Christian now, so it's Grove City. Another one's like Patrick Henry College in Virginia. There are these small uh, 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 colleges that have intentionally created their financial structure so that they don't have to rely on government, you know, loans from students and stuff like that. So you don't fill out your FAFSA when you go to Grove City, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Okay. So the modern self. So my first one, and this will be, several, I mean, we'll, it'll probably take all of August to go through this, honestly, uh, maybe even to September, because that's a, it's a major, major deal because it's how we understand ourselves individuals. So this is about the individual and the idea that I, you know, I'm just being true to myself and I'm expressive individualism, you know, so he gets you, he gives you the history there. Now, what he doesn't do well, and this is where I'm going to adjust it for the class is how do we, how what do we do about it? So what the book is really good at is telling us how we got there. Mm -hmm. And so now the question is, is, what do we do about it? 
or what's the alternative worldview, right? That's where, that's where we'll have to adjust it. So the modern self and the main text for that is going to be Carl Truman. Okay. So then my next second, okay, I'm going to do my third one for next. And this is just simply postmodernism because we still are in postmodern times. And this is tricky. And this is the one I've talked about the most before. This is the one about the idea of like everything. For example, this is going all the way back to the 80s and 90s. You've heard about people that say things like uh, the, the reading is found in the reader. The meaning is found in the reader. The text itself is not true. It's just whatever you make of the text. And so what happens in uh, is, is this is going to tie into my second one in a second. But if you want to read the Bible as a feminist, that's fine. If you want to read the Bible as liberation theology, that's fine. If you want to read, you don't look at what the text actually says. You ask what the text means for you or your group. Does that make sense? Your truth. Right. It's your truth. It's tied into this, but it's done, um, especially in academic circles. And it also impacts the way we interact with other people. So this is a different, you see what I'm saying? It's like, these are all tied together. That's why I said it's a three-headed hound. That's why I want to use this. And this next one, I'm going to use, I'm going to do, I'm just going to put this up here. I'm probably going to call it something else, but I'm just going to say critical theories. This isn't necessarily um, critical race theory. That's just kind of a grandfather of even bigger critical theories. Um, but I wanted to spend some time on some of these socio-political things that are going on. So Vody Bauckham's book, um, Fault Lines, I'll probably use some. I'll use Vody Bauckham's uh, talk at Patrick Henry College in particular on this one. But there's also some other work that's been done on things like intersectionality. Have you ever heard that term before? Or on um, uh, just critical theory in general. Or the idea of privilege and oppression and those sort of all. The, we're using these terms like we know what they mean. But we don't know what they mean. People will say things like, what's that? I can't hear you over your straight white male privilege. Like they'll say comments to you like that on social media. And you're like, what? Where are they coming from? Like, where's this verbiage coming from? There's a history behind that. And then there's also a response. So that these all three tie together in different ways. So to give you, and again, this is just a preview. I'm going to get to Isaiah in a second. But what, what I'm going to do here is, is all of these. So in other words, if this is who I am as an expressive individual, and society is keeping me down from being my true expressive self, these theories help explain why I can't be my authentic me. You see how this works? And this stuff helps me to deconstruct all these other texts that stop me from being, you see how these all relate to each other? So this is why I'm calling it like my three-headed head from hell, so this sort of thing, because this really is, all of these intersect in a proper way. They all kind of combine with each other and reinforce each other into a holistic worldview. It's an alternative religion. Um, Vody Bauckham does a really good job about explaining this, and he's really facetious. On the first day, white people created white privilege. And on the second day, white people created, it's hilarious, and he's a black guy talking about this, but he's talking about how it's an alternative cosmology that's going on. And these three things together really are an alternative religion because it allows you to justify anything. Well, I feel like I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, and I'm not able to keep my, well, that's because of the cultural hegemon that oppresses people like me. And because of uh, the language of culture and the way that we interpret history and the way we look at things is all dominated by these folks. And so we need to deconstruct all these texts and realities so that I can live my authentic me. <laughs> See how this works? Yes. So they all relate to each other, okay? And so that's a, it's a direct challenge to the biblical worldview. This is not like, it's not like one of those that we can just adapt it. Um, however, to be try to be charitable and to try to be honest, there are reasons, legitimate, I don't know if legitimate is the right word, but real human condition reasons why people are attracted to this. And we not we need to, to the root of that. It's not it's one thing to kind of deconstruct bad ideas, but why are people attracted to the bad ideas? Right. And what 
are the reasons why we can we can deconstruct these. So this is why, and, and I mean that in a good sense again. So these are different things. So in understanding the times, I'm going to take these three kind of topics and then really go through them, like really go through them. I mean, I'm going to have curriculum, like I said, I have curriculum, I have video curriculum, I have study guides, I have other books that I'm going to use. I have, I mean, it's going to be a pretty immersive thing. It also is great for me because I use this uh, in the high school a little bit because I'm using this in, I have apologetics next year, the, the class apologetics. We're going to spend a chunk of time doing this stuff um, with my seniors because so you're your kind of, or you got actually you're kind of, I, you're kind of helping each other because I'm going to be doing it kind of simultaneously. Yeah. So really lesson planning for one is like lesson planning for the other. It's great. Um, but no, it's good because then I can, I can not only can I test it, but also I can talk to different groups at different you know, stages of life and kind of see where they're at on these things. And honestly, it'll probably help me in terms of when they ask me questions and you guys ask questions and we have discussions because then I can take it. And if I teach it on Monday, I can just go, you know, do it right away. So it's going to be kind of a neat way. I'm going to kind of uh, inculcate this. And Pastor Dinger, I got him to listen. He uh, listened to Buff Cody Bacham on the way to Twin Falls to help Chris out. And he was really impressed with his Patrick Henry talk. He's like, he was a really excellent communicator. He was really impressed by that. He just told me that yesterday, actually. So anyways, that's what we're going to do. So now I'm going to go to Isaiah. I just want to let you know. So on the record, on the camera. So on August, I'm kind of selling myself here a little bit. But I do think that when you hear people say things like critical race theory or when they say things like, you know, it's Pride Month right now or whatever it is, where does all this stuff come from, I think, is the main point of what we're going to do, but then also have answers. That's that's the goal of the class. All right. So now that I've established this and we'll see how the people that do the podcast edit all of that, um, I want to do three chapters in Isaiah to end Isaiah. And it's the reason is it really does point you towards Christ and the New Testament. And these are awesome passages. You will recognize some of them from our readings because they happen every year. So I'm going to start with Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 is the longest one we're going to do. But as soon as I start reading, we'll see how many of you recognize this. Isaiah 60. If you have a Bible with you, I have Bibles over there too, of course. Or if you have your phone, here's Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall, be, shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Okay, so those first seven verses, anybody want to guess when we read that in the church calendar? A little later, but right on your close. Epiphany. Visit of the wise men. This is our Old Testament reading. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the reason is we have even some of the same gifts. Okay, so this is actually fulfilled in the visit of the Magi. There's, notice what it says, kings to the brightness of your rising. That's why we sing we three kings. Okay, that's why we sing that. Okay, it comes from, it's, it's a reference, it's kind of a poetic reference to this. And we say three kings or three wise men because there's three gifts. But there could have been more, of course, we all talk about that. But there's nothing wrong with the traditional image because it's called telescoping. You put it all together to make it memorable, right? So you don't have to destroy your nativity set, okay? That sort of thing, okay? So Isaiah 60, um, but that's where that comes from, is that, is, so we put it all together. Yes, they probably showed up a little later, blah, 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 blah. It's it's okay. 
um, lift up your eyes because the message is still the same. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting about this is this reference. And if you have a study Bible, if you have this, you, you might have some notes on these things. But Midian was a threat to Israel. And yet now they're coming to Israel. Right. Ephah was another nation. And they have ancestral ties with Israel. Um, I don't know if, if you think of the Edomites and the Midianites, they're often like cousins because they're either related somehow through uh, Esau's kids, for example, or through Ishmael's kids. And so they're dis they're kind of cousins, but they're often adversarial, right? And so for them to be actually giving Israel gifts means something has changed. Those ancient enemies, those cousins they keep fighting with, are all of a sudden bringing their gifts. Okay, and so that's that. There's a there's a great reversal. It's that great reversal theme. And then of course worship is expressed through sacrifices. And notice that it says the rams of Nebaioth. That's on verse seven. Nebaioth is the firstborn son of Ishmael. So that's interesting. So the Ishmaelites are bringing acceptable sacrifices to God. How's that going to work? Something's different here with this arrival um, that this light has come. So why? We're going to get that in 61 because it's the messianic promise. Why is this going to happen? Okay, it's right here. But it's an awesome passage. So Isaiah 60 starts off with this section um, that we read off in an epiphany. But it continues, and we almost never read this passage. Sometimes you'll have certain churches that will go to like verse 11. Um, we usually read through verse 7, but I'm going to keep going now. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first. Tarshish is Spain. Okay, so this is the known civilized world at the time, okay? To bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and the, for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you. But in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night, they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with the kings led in procession. You know, it's interesting with this, with their gates constantly open. Think in ancient Near East. Why is that a big deal? What does that mean? There's no threats. There's absolute 100% peace and security. Anybody seen that in this world yet? No. Well, it's not exactly the eye of the needle. Yeah, <laughs> we're coming. We're coming. That's why Isaiah 66. That's why we continue in Isaiah, because it still hasn't happened yet for anybody, whether it's for ancient Israel or for the church yet. We're still not quite dwelling securely. Right. Except for those who have gone on in the Lord, of course. OK, verse 12 for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. It's an interesting image, isn't it? I'll parse that one a little bit. And you shall know that I, the Lord of your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will be no more till your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. 
for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a ninety nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. So obviously, something is going on here that's greater than just ancient Israel. Because now we have, does anybody recognize some of this from the book of Revelation at all? The book of Revelation, especially from about this section on, there's some in Isaiah 35, in the 30s, a little bit in the 40s, but in the 60s in particular, uh, John, when he writes the book of Revelation, alludes to Isaiah over and over and over again. And you can hear that, right? The sun is not giving the light anymore. It's the, it's the glory of the Lord that's providing the light, right? That's, that's almost quoted verbatim in the book of Revelation. So this is obviously an end times, a final resting place for God's people. And so he's promising this to the faithful of ancient Israel. We have been grafted in. So this is also our promise now. This is our promise. That will get to this point where the gates are always open. You are dwelling securely. Everybody is righteous. I love that line because it's interesting. Your people shall all be righteous. How is that possible unless it's the act of God? There's just no way. We can't do it ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. How is it that everyone is going to be righteous? That sounds like the new heavens and the new earth, doesn't it? Where everybody's no longer a slave to sin. Nobody has disordered desires. Nobody has broken down bodies. Nature itself has been renewed, right? That's what this is. This is the new heavens and the new earth. And we see it here 600 years, 700 years before Jesus even walking the earth. This promise is being made. Why? Isaiah 61, how is it going to happen? The messianic messenger is how it's going to happen. Tell me if you recognize this passage, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring new, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The idea that they are oaks of righteousness. Pastor Dinger did a sermon series several years ago about these like metaphors throughout the Bible. Oaks of righteousness is one. Another one was living stones. Do you remember that one when he was going through that? He talked through these metaphors at one point because they're interesting images of what we're supposed to be when God does things. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And then it continues to make similar promises. But notice this interjection here. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who's the me? Right? Jesus says, quotes this. So if you don't know this image, this happens. It's a fascinating section. It actually happens in Luke. It also is quoted in Matthew. So if you want to go where this is fulfilled, go to Luke 4. Okay, go to Luke 4. Look starting in verse 16. This is after the temptation of Jesus. So Jesus is baptized. To give you some context, Jesus is baptized. The Spirit of the Lord descends upon him as a dove. God, the Father in heaven, says, you hear a voice, right? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, right? That section. So you have the Holy Trinity, image of the Holy Trinity, and Jesus' ministry starts. This is the initiation of his ministry. Okay, it's his early ministry. Because remember, for the first 30 years, with the exception of the nativity narrative, and then when he shows up in the temple at 12 and stays in the temple and his parents freak out, right? Remember that thing? With the exception of that, we have nothing about his early life. We assume he was a carpenter because almost every Jewish boy learned their dad's trade. That's about all we know, right? 
But then he shows up and gets baptized and starts his ministry. Okay. So he gets tempted by the devil and he begins his ministry. Look at verse 14 in Luke 4. Okay. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified for all. So he actually is teaching frequently, but then something shifts in his teaching. He points something out about his ministry. So he's teaching as a rabbi. Okay. So he's a rabbi. He's, close to the Pharisees. Some people say he was a Pharisee. I'm not sure if he was a Pharisee, but he was rubbing shoulders with them in the sense that he was teaching the people. He wasn't an aristocrat, you know, sitting in a villa in Rome, only gathering to uh, do things out of Rome. In Jerusalem, you know, favored and that sort of thing. He was rubbing shoulders with the common teachers of the time, okay? So he's teaching the rabbi, he's teaching as a rabbi in the synagogues. Now look at this. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So remember, this is where he was brought up. This is where he was, he was raised as a kid. They all know who he is. And he, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is what we just read in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is a huge deal. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Think about that. Think about what he just did. Okay, so remember, so this is, the, they treated the, the Torah, the Bible, and the Torah is just a certain part of it. But they treated all the writings, right, of the, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, with great reverence. Okay, and they would open the scroll. Everything was ceremonial. They carried it in procession. This is a big deal. This is the word of God. For him to roll up the scroll, sit down and say, this is fulfilled, that was a huge deal in this culture. They, and you can see the response. Yeah, go for it. Isn't, that, isn't, it, the, isn't it true that, that on a particular day in Judaism, the same scripture is read? Yeah, they have like a lectionary, yeah. right? They have a series of... So yeah. that, that it happened that day, that he was there... Very intentional, yes, right? You, you, you think God knew what he was doing, okay. right? Yeah. <laughs> you could also say he's he uttered, it is finished. Right, already, right? This is our, this has been done. He yes. just uttered what he will say on the cross. He's always yeah. How do they, uh, now he, he was a rabbi. How do they determine who's going to unscroll the, the scroll? It's this, the local synagogue. They have people that are like, so he can, as a rabbi, he would have had that ability because um, it's whoever's the appointed reader of the time. Right. So in other words, they have like an it's a great honor and it's usually going to be one of your uh, one of your Pharisees or one of your scribes, somebody who's, you know, given the task of doing those things. So, so he could. He, yeah. As a, as a train, as a, well, he did. He was you know, he was trained when he was born. Right. But but as somebody who is recognized as a teaching authority, he could do that. But to roll it up and then say it's done. That's basically saying he's like that scripture. It's pointing to me. Right. This is the idea. I have the authority to not only roll it, but to say it's done. I've done this. And so that's when this takes place, right? So he initiates his ministry with this. And so how, so this is why it's, it's really cool to look at Isaiah. So how is it that the walls are going to be called salvation and the gates praise? How is it that the sun is going to be no more and the glory is going to be everlasting light? How is it going to be that all the people shall be righteous? It's through this. It's through Christ. That's the answer to this. It's through Christ that this is fulfilled. There's no other way. So now look at it. Look what happens, right? So now you have strangers coming because the church is not just ancient Israel now. Right. It's all nations. It's all of us all of here. We're all Gentile believers. OK, so this prophesies us coming to the knowledge of God. It, so let's it, it keeps going right here. Verse five. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. 
Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in the glory you shall boast. Think about this. Have you ever heard of the, and this is something we emphasize as Lutherans in particular, the priesthood of all believers? We're all considered, it's not just a certain class, right? Okay, priests of God. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Again, this is not a normal just restoration. This is something that's eternal. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And now we have Isaiah talking. I will, uh, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself for her jewels. We as the church can sing this song. Right? As the church, because of the way God has covered us and made us righteous, we are now his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. This is fulfilled with us. We can actually sing this song because of what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. Okay? For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Okay? It's a pretty cool little, little moment, right, that we have here. This idea that God's going to create this through the ministry of the Messiah. And so this is where Isaiah sometimes I recommend. It's, it's fun to do this as a class. But sometimes it's good, especially starting in Isaiah 40, where the, the tone changes, where it's comfort my people. If you have a chance maybe on an afternoon sometime or, you know, on a weekend, read from 40 to the end. Now that you've done some of this, take Isaiah 40 and read all the way to 66. We're going to look at 66 here at the end here. <clears throat> Just do it and see the effect that it has. And then again, think of all the ways in that, the way that Christ fulfills those passages. We have the suffering servant in 52 and 53, right? We have all these uh, gospel promises about righteous giving given to us, about how we are being made righteous and all these other things. Think about the promises of Christ as you read through this. It's a fascinating thing um, to see. Okay, the last one I want to spend, any questions on this before I go to the end? The ending one is, I want to end on this because it's such a great ending. It's like a great bookend for the whole thing. Any questions, comments? All right, 66. There's more in this, and I'm just skipping ahead because this is the last class. 66 is awesome. First, it gives you the heavenly perspective of how big God is. Let's start with that. Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Remind you how big God is. Okay, He owns the whole universe. He made it through his, the power of his word. <laughs> Heaven's my throne. Earth is my footstool. It's a very neat poetic image as far as that goes. How are you going to contain God? Solomon says something similar when he dedicates the first temple, right? Is it? Can the Lord really dwell in a place built with hands? Right? It's an amazing, you know, Solomon knows who God is, and you can tell, and God in his mercy chooses to. Anyways, the glory of the Lord still dwells there. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox like the one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like the one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their ways and their soul delights in their abominations. 
I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So they were using, and again, if you have a study Bible on this, the use of prescribed offerings as a magical device to immobilize the Lord is abhorrent to him as sacrificing human beings or unclean animals such as dogs or swine. Um, we've actually discovered the remains of sacrifices, including birds, puppies, donkeys, and even a person um, in the remains of some of these places. So that's what he's referring to in this. And they're trying to control God. So rather than being humble, that's why he starts off with, hey, look, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, and you're trying to control me with this stuff. How's that going to go? Notice also that God's not, it's not like God was trying to fry them in the first place, so to speak. What does he say? He says, when I spoke, they did not listen. When I call, He was calling them. It's not like he didn't give them a shot. But they intentionally rejected him so much so that they were engaging in these animal sacrifices to try to like cancel him out or stop him from doing things. That's how far gone they were. And so this is one of those back to that Lewis quote that I've given you multiple times in this class. God says, all right, your will be done then. Have it your way. That's what this is. Uh, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. And that's one of the reasons why in the New Testament uh, we have Jude, for example, and we have this weird passage where it says the archangel Michael was disputing with the devil for the body of Moses. Have you read that passage? Weird, weird passage. Only time it's ever mentioned in scriptures in Jude. The archangel Michael was disputing with the devil for the body of Moses. And what does he say? He says, the Lord rebuke you. That's one of the reasons that we're taught, you know, God says vengeance is mine, these sort of things. It's not our job to go to try to make everything right, even though we'd like to sometimes. And we're not talking about the government at this point, like the kingdom of the left. We're talking about the end of all things. This is a cosmic perspective. That's God's job. Okay, so he's rendering recompense. Not our job, God's job. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? This is a metaphor God's using for a woman. My wife's back here because she's, she, I, I, I know I can share this. She would tell like her friends that when she couldn't stand being pregnant anymore, she had two weeks left. <laughs> right? Am I right about that? Something like that? So if you get to the, if God brings Zion to that point, to that point, is he going to just all of a sudden stop it? So if you ask my wife, how pregnant were you, right? <laughs> that when you said, I got two weeks left when I can't stand anymore. That's the status of how pregnant time is going to be where God's going to actually bring things forth. We get this fulfilled in Galatians when he says in the fullness of time, God brought forth a son born of a woman, right? That's in Galatians. That word fullness of time, that in Greek means pregnant time. So in Greek, God does do this in the fullness of time. He brings forth Christ and in the fullness of time, he will return. Okay. Rejoice. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from your glorious abundance. That's the second time we've had a nursing metaphor in two chapters. This idea is, think about the security a young child has nursing at the breast. 
They have no other cares in the world. They're at peace. They're calm. It's one of the reasons my wife misses having little kids because it's there. You know, their whole world is there and they're comforted. They're at peace. They're calm. That's the level of peace God desires for his people. That's why that metaphor is there. And so being in God's place, the new Jerusalem, so to speak, we have the same sort of peace as an image. It's a metaphor. It's actually greater than that, that a little baby has nursing at its mother's breast asleep at absolute calm and peace where they're at, you know, they're at rest. That's the rest God desires for us. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. Jerusalem has knees. Jerusalem has a hip. You see what's going on here. It's a big extended poetic metaphor. As one whom his mother comforts, so shall I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. That phrase, as one whom his mother comforts, uh, Brahms quotes this in his German Requiem. This is where I'm going to give you a little bit of my music history geek. Brahms wrote his German Requiem, which is all music from Luther's Bible. It's not the old Latin mass for the, for the dead, which is beautiful in its own right. But it's actually sources of comfort from the, the German Bible. And Brahms wrote it in response to the death of his friend and composer, Robert Schumann, but also the death of his mother. And so in the very center, in the very center of his German Requiem is this verse as to honor his own mother, but to also comfort. You see what's going on here? So Brahms quotes this passage, Isaiah 66, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And then a single woman, a soprano, sings this aria right in the middle. It's almost kind of out of nowhere in the middle because it's almost all choir. And all of a sudden there's a solo. And that solo is about the comforting of a mother. And so we think this was his way of honoring his mom cryptically. He would never have admitted it because he was kind of very private. But he would have that we think that's what that's that's why that's there. And that's why this image is here for us too. this idea of comfort. Okay, Kind of interesting. Okay, continue. Um, uh, Verse 14, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the heads of the Lord shall be known to his servant hands. Sorry, of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. And now we have the final judgment. This is the last last things. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice. What an odd reference. We think this is a reference to Dagon. The Dagon was a Philistine god. Um, he was a Canaanite god, and he was rep- often represented with mice. Just so you know, we think that's what the reference is to. Shall come to an end to- together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. And that's always a reminder for me. God knows my thoughts. That should cause me to repent all the time. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish. Now, these are important things geographically, if you want to imagine your map. Tarshish is Spain, Pol and Lud to draw the bow, to Tubal and to Javan. This is the entire known world at the time. So Javan is most likely what we call Greece and Turkey. Tubal is most likely what we call like Georgia and Armenia, the mountainous region south of Russia and to the east of Persia. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you, if you think your map, I'm going to pull my world map down here in a second if you need it. But this is the entire kind of known world. Um, uh, 
Lud and and Pol and other places. That's like northern Africa, right? And also like think Egypt and and Arabia. So this is the entire Mediterranean world, as far east as outside of Persia, and as far as west as the end of the Mediterranean world in Spain. So this is the whole for them in their cosmology and their thoughts. This is everybody that they knew about. Now this would include China and America and other things now, but back then this was a poetic way of describing this. Okay. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new, here's his key, verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What an ending. We get all these wonderful promises, and then there's an edge right at the end. Jesus uses this imagery when he describes uh, the Kidron Valley. This is what we call Gehenna. It's one of Jesus' met um, metaphors for hell with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, And the idea that the worms shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. Gehenna in the Kidron Valley was a valley outside of Jerusalem. It was the garbage dump. And it was constantly on fire. And it was also known for having human sacrifices. Okay, So that's the image that we're given of hell or of the final judgment. Um, Jesus uses this frequently. And he, and he calls it Gehenna calls it Gehenna. This is the first kind of reference we have to similar language like this, and it's right here at the end of Isaiah. And so there's an edge to this, and this is not, and notice that the word fire is present a lot in this chapter, starting in verse 15, the Lord will come with fire. This is a fire that only God can know. We kind of read this, and way too many people kind of over-literalize these metaphors, and they like, you know, draw a picture of a person that's like standing in a campfire or something, okay? This is a fire that somehow allows worm not to die, how can those things coexist simultaneously? You see what I mean? God's presence is sometimes called a consuming fire. And yet it's people suffering eternal. If it's a consuming fire, how are they still alive? You see, what you see that we have to be careful here to use these metaphors. The idea is, is we're going to give you these metaphors, worm that doesn't die, fire that isn't quenched. I mean, think about a burn victim, right? You get what I'm saying? We're giving you these images to say how horrible this is, it's supposed to kind of turn the stomach a little bit. That's the intention of the metaphor. It's not meant to say this is literally exactly how hell is. Is that helpful? Because we don't want to over-literalize the metaphor. But it does talk about some sort of final judgment. We can't uh, try to avoid it. It is in the scripture. We're teaching the whole counsel of God. But I think you can also tell from these passages in Isaiah that that's not what God's desire is either. Right? This is, again... Thy will be done. The study note has a really good view on this here. It says, with hot rebuke, Isaiah closes this prophecy. Though he has emphasized God's grace and restoration in the preceding chapters, he ends with the fires of punishment because his hearers will not repent. This day with repentant cry, lift your voice to the maker of heaven and earth. He who has every right to condemn also has every desire to forgive you and raise you to new life as he has demonstrated to you in his son, the savior from sin and hell. And there's a great prayer at the end. Holy Jesus, sanctify and purify me from all uncleanness. Quench my passion for sin and grant me everlasting life. Amen. Um, there's an interesting kind of thing about the idea that 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 kind of that smoldering fire that keeps in you that wants to do the wrong thing. That's kind of the hell in you 
is the metaphor that they're kind of taking here that in this life we experience little glimmers of both heaven and hell right and often hells of our own making is is, is is where they're going with this on that prayer and i do like that kind of idea of talking about it but the good news of course is we have a new heavens and we have a new earth and we will constantly remain forever right that's the good news but there's always that kind of edge there and it's again not because god's desiring this it's because god wants heaven to be full but there's a consequence for those of us who actually reject that and so it's a it's it's interesting again jesus is going to lift this uh lift this language frequently when he speaks about this comments questions on this before we go this looks like the youth are getting out here any comments or questions so thus concludes our brief four into isaiah that started in the fall um hopefully you enjoyed something or got something out of it um next time we meet and i'm not sure if i'm going to be in here or the other building i'll let you know it'll be announced ahead of time um, if we stay in my room, I like being in my room just because I have all my toys um, <laughs> and it's quiet, you know, and it's, it's that sort of thing. And I got a lot of space. Right. So I like being in here, but we'll see if powers that be still allow me to be in here. I know sometimes there's advantages of all being in the same building. Um, but if you're OK coming over to the parking lot, um, that way I have all my stuff. Right. And it's kind of fun. All right. Um, let's close the blessing and then we'll go now that my entire clan is here, except for Patrick. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. Amen.